Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Paradise After Dark. Dark, 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 dark. Paradise After Dark is an independent podcast covering true crime, unsolved mysteries, missing people, urban legends, and, of course, the dark side of the Sunshine State. If you'd like to support our show and get a bunch of extra Paradise After Dark content, you can sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Paradise After Dark podcast. Uh, you can also visit our website. There you'll find links to all of our episodes, our mailing list, uh, links to our social medias, and, of course, a link back to our Patreon. We also have a virtual tip jar there, so if you want to leave us a little tip, and we'll give you a shout-out on our show. So tonight, guys, if you tuned in to listen to Lauren's beautiful angelic voice, I'm going to go ahead and apologize. You'll have to tune in later on or join our Patreon, where we have plenty of stuff with her wonderful voice on it. Because tonight is just me. I'm alone here. And uh, it's okay because I've got a great interview with a gentleman that we met at CrimeCon. His name is Vincent Sheffaloo. He's a retired ATF agent. He did a, uh, a speech. He was one of the presenters there at CrimeCon in Austin. And uh, what a great guy. It was fun to talk to. Well, Vince Sheffaloo is the author of Rat Snakes. And Rat Snakes is a great read. It's basically a tell-all book as an ATF agent. Then starts with sort of how he became an ATF agent, starting off as working on the other side of the law, where maybe he wasn't such a clean-cut guy. But it did help, you know, sort of groom him to become the person that he is. Now, we're talking about a guy that was in the Marines. He worked for Customs. He became an ATF agent. And he tells this story in such a way to where you can understand it. And the thing I love about this guy is, is he had such a great crew that in his book he makes sure – to notice and mention everyone that was part of his group, at least anyone that he could possibly talk about, or I guess maybe that was willing to share his story. But I read the book. I think it's a great book. I think you guys will love it. Uh, It's a great interview that I did with him, and I just wanted to get kind of his feel for it. 
This guy went after the KKK. He went after these gun smugglers. He went after some really rough dudes. I mean, we're talking Hell's Angels, the Iron Cross motorcycle gang. He tells it all. To give you some idea of how good this book is, Joe Pistone, he was the former undercover FBI agent that everyone knows today as Donnie Brasco. And he read the book, and he says, Sheffaloo bears all and lays out the gritty and true life of an undercover agent in the workings of the ATF, a must-read for law enforcement and the public. And then Cheryl Atkinson, host of Full Measure and a former CBS investigative correspondent, she wrote, Vincent Sheffaloo is the real deal, and Rat Snakes takes us on a wild ride through his dark world of paranoia, danger, fear, hard living, hard drinking, and the chase. In the end, it's a gripping story revealing how some of the most effective federal undercover agents earn their chops, make their living, and work to protect their fellow Americans in ways that usually go unrecognized. So I'm going to go ahead and play the interview. You guys uh, take a listen to the interview. I hope you really enjoy it. He's a really great guy. He was at CrimeCon. You can do some research on him and pick up a copy of Rat Snakes. I think you all will really enjoy it. Be sure to tune in next week for Lauren's wonderful voice. And uh, here it goes. Thanks, everyone, and welcome to Paradise After Dark, 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 dark podcast, where I have the pleasure to be speaking with Vincent A. Sheffaloo. He's a retired ATF agent and the author of the book Rat Snakes, Cheating Death by Living a Lie, Inside the Explosive World of the ATF's Undercover Agents and How We Change the Game. So welcome, Vince. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you joining us and taking the time to uh, talk to us tonight, discuss your book and whatever else we can talk about. Well, yeah, let's get after it. I'm, everybody should know I met you guys for the first time at CrimeCon, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. You know, I'm, it's funny because when, <laughs> without even knowing who you were, because we hadn't had the formal introduction, I saw you across the room, and we kind of saw you in the hotel lobby there. Uh, I said to my wife, I said, that guy there doesn't quite fit in, uh, but I, I got a feeling that that's not the guy you want to piss off right there. So after reading Rat Snakes, I understand, you, you know, know what was funny. <laughs> I was I was walking by um Nancy Grace. She had just gotten there. And obviously it would have been cool to get a picture with her, but I wasn't gonna ask her. I mean, I just in the way I roll. And she was talking to a couple people, and as I walked by, I glanced over at her and she waved me over and she said, I love your hat. And I said, well, thank you. Can I get a picture with you? And it it was just like so cool. <laughs> she she is cool. We've met her a couple times and uh, at CrimeCon, and she's always been pretty awesome. Yeah, um, I, I sort of had a preconceived notion that she was kind of snooty because of her show, but she was a really sweet lady. Yeah, she's she's pretty sweet. She does some pretty good, she does some pretty good work there at CrimeCon with her. Her speeches, her podcasts are good. So she's got a lot going on for the true crime world. Speaking of your hat, I have a question about your hat. I mean, obviously, I understand your look after reading Rat Snakes. The hat kind of, it kind of draws you in because it seems like you've had that hat for a really long time. Dude, that, you know what? That's probably going to be the best question you asked me all night. <laughs> so about 20 years ago, okay, my mom died in 2010. So probably 20, 15, 18 years ago, for my birthday, my mom bought me that hat. I'd never worn a hat. She didn't have any reason to think I'd like that hat, but she saw it at a fair and bought it for me. <laughs> I fell in love with that hat. 
So every year before she passed, we would go to that same fair and I'd buy a new hat. And then she passed on and the fairs aren't doing anymore. And I ended up having to order it from Australia because everybody, even my priest at church, if I show up and, he, and I'm not wearing my hat, he's like, where's your hat? That's great. Well, you know, it's very yeah. fitting. It's very fitting with your Are look. You I know. I, it, you know, it is what it is. You know, I look in the mirror. I know what I look like. But that hat is cool as shit. And so that makes me cool as shit. That is. <laughs> well, like, I, you know, most people think uh, when they think ATF, FBI, CIA, I mean, they think, you know, men in black suits. But that's not that's nothing to do with the job that you did. No, but. Well, I, yes, it was. Um, there's a time and a place for everything. We were necessary, even when I say we, I mean the undercover operators and the big bosses tolerated us because we made the big cases. But they didn't like us scrolling in in blue jeans and flip flops in the middle of the day doing our reports and shit when everybody else was in coat tie. Um, but they tolerated us. But yeah, you know, um, ATF was a professional organization. And obviously I had plenty of coats and ties for court and details and anything else I needed to do. But I could switch to, you know, go mode if I needed to. That was my superpower. Yeah, that's that's what I love about the book, because, you know, that's one of the things I really enjoyed, because the way you tell the story is like the perspective of an undercover agent. But there's some seriousness, a little dash of humor, and obviously the professionalism. So, I mean, I can only imagine that the stories that you didn't even put or you can't tell that aren't in the book. I mean, I really enjoyed the ones that are there. But Oh, dude, so many of those stories will go to the grave. When I um, included my team, not my team, our team, uh, the guys I highlighted in the book because that was the crew I traveled through 30 years with. not to say they were the only UCs out there, or even the best UCs. That was just the group I traveled with over my career. But when I approached them about doing the book, I said, I'm going to do it. Everybody's been talking about it, so I'm going to do it. We, we had a come to Jesus reunion. I don't even remember where, in Florida or somewhere. Maybe it was in my house in Tahoe. But we were very... We had some very specific guidelines to this book, to say the least. Oh, I can imagine you had to be real careful what you put in the book. Maybe maybe you could put it in there, but things that you really didn't want anyone to know about. Because I'm sure it's a... Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all think... Children <laughs> and shit. <laughs> well, I... Plus, plus, it was a big deal not to cro- compromise any trade secrets or make it any harder or more dangerous on anybody that's still out there doing the job. Oh yeah. Understandable there. I, I could definitely see that. Well, let's kind of, before we get ahead, let's, you know, what's, what's the history of you? What is, what's Vincent Sheffaloo? I mean, how did you sort of get sort of turned on to the ATF? I know that you were in the military, but you were kind of sentenced to the military. Well, I can literally go back. Um, if you read my book, you'll find out I was somewhat of a troubled youth. No, not somewhat. I was a troubled youth. I showed my ass a good bit. So I had a bunch of interactions with the cops through my teens. 
But even though, like, I always got the short end of that stick because I was the one being an asshole, um, stealing or drugs or whatever it was, I always was enamored at their bigger than life professionalism when they dealt with me and my parents and the juvenile justice system. And I was like, man, these guys are squared away. So believe it or not, even through my years of tumultuous criminal bullshit, I always thought highly and wanted, thought it'd be cool to be a cop. So then the Marines come along, maybe not completely by choice, but well, I had a choice. I could do four years in or one year in jail or four years in the Marines. I chose a Marine. And there I got the opportunity to be a military policeman, like a kid's dream, imagine. But the military police are like police on crack. That's where I learned about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law and about civil rights and the constitution and the amendments to the constitution and basic law and i dug it so much i started going to school on uh at, with my first wife's uh encouragement started going to college in the criminal justice program they offered on base and i was just i found a home so from there the logical progression was get out of the marines go to a police department i was a uniform patrolman and a SWAT team member at the Athens, Georgia Police Department, which I loved. It was a great department. It was the best job in the world. But at some point, I decided I wasn't going to want to be directing traffic at 55 years old in the rain on Christmas Eve. And through my travels, having been a military policeman when Ronald Reagan visited Camp Lejeune, and having been in Athens when Jimmy Carter came there, and having been support served a support function for certain fbi or dea raids when they came to athens i always looked at these feds and went man everybody gets out of their way what's what's their deal you know and i started talking to them and asking them and pretty much to a man they said do you have a college degree i said no sir i'm working on it they said well don't don't even come talk to us till you do and so then i was on a mission and i finished my degree and I applied to everybody. And I mean, everybody. The FBI basically said I wasn't mentally competent enough to be an uh, FBI agent. A bunch of agencies were like half-assed showing interest. But at that time, the drug wars were going on, you know, in the early 80s down in South Florida. And customs under Willie Von Robb was taking over the world. The FBI, DEA, ATF, anybody else, Secret Service, they're hiring 10, 15, 20 agents a year. Customers was hiring like 200. Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, they're going crazy. They had a budget that probably is still classified. They were buying boats and airplanes and radar, airborne radar and you name it. So they hired me. They're hiring anything that had a pulse. I went down to Key West. And they handed me the keys to an 800 horsepower offshore racing boat and said, go catch smugglers. And it was pretty cool. I mean, it, it was cool on a lot of levels, but it wasn't a fit for me. Number one, it was basically another patrol job. A really glorified high paying patrol job, but it was patrolling the waters. Number two, one of customs major jurisdictions is child pornography. A lot of people don't know that. 
Yeah, and I, I knew if I had stayed in customs long enough, at some point I'd be in a child pornography group. And I was just, I knew a man's got those limitations and I knew that wasn't me. I don't have the tolerance for crimes against children. And that coupled with, I had gotten involved in a big smuggling case. Turns out it was guns and armament, like Title II, like heavy weapons. And when my boss like, reviewed my reports and discussed it with me, he goes, and we had like a full court press on this seagoing tugboat. We were going to, we knew where it was. We were tracking it by satellite. We were doing everything. But my boss, who was an ex-HTF agent, said, you know what? You better call Miami ATF. They're going to want to be involved in this. Because it was all a bunch of guns getting taken out of the country. So I called the ATF thinking they're going to send another 20 guys down. They sent one guy down. And this guy took over this quasi-customs task force on this one vessel, on this one case, and took charge and did everything that needed to be done, enlisted enough troops and resources and everything, and we ripped it. And I was like, this dude came down and did with one agent what 20 of us were doing. And I went, those dudes are pretty cool. So long story short, the writing was on the wall and I decided I was going to move from customs to ATF. Now at the time, ATF, you said in the book, I think was part of treasury. Was customs part of treasury or just the ATF? No. It, and that's what made the transition so easy. Actually three guys, three customs guys, me, Bernie Turler and Jim Langley, who's in my book, got detailed down to the Bahamas to do joint operation, you know, counter smuggling stuff. And while we were on the boat down there together and living together for three weeks, four weeks, whatever the detail was, both of them told me, oh, dude, this is my last custom operation. I'm going to ATF. So that kind of planted the bug. I'd already been con considering it. But to answer your question, yes, at that time, under Treasury was the IRS, Secret Service, Customs, and ATF. Okay, so that made it did make the transition a little so it was, Yeah, they already had my background investigation and all that. And I was kind of amazed after I did my interview that they even hired me because I went in, I had hair down my ass and all <laughs> that. And they were apparently digging my vibes. Well, you were the perfect fit for, I mean, if you read the book, you'll, you'll understand. I mean, if you get the book Rat Snakes, you'll understand that that kind of fit the profile of what you needed to be at the time. I mean, if you take a look, at the 70s, 80s, and the, the section that you were in, you really had to have a look like that. And, you know, it was weird because ATF, well, Treasury, Maine Treasury had a policy. Like if you were a new hire and you got hired, you could not, if you check, I only want to be stationed in Atlanta because that's where I'm from, you weren't going to get hired. You had to check the box. I will serve anywhere that custom sends me. Well, when they interviewed me, they interviewed me. I was coming up from Key West. So the assumption was I'm from Florida or Miami or Key West or whatever. So when they hired me, they said, we're happy to announce we're giving you the position, but you have to go to San Francisco, which was really understaffed at the time because of the cost of living. Nobody wanted to go out there. Little do they know that's my hometown. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, sir. Because I want to be an ATF agent so bad, I'll go ahead and accept that position. I walked outside, called Collect, and my mother in Novato, California, just outside San Francisco, said, you're not going to believe this, Mom. I'm coming home. 
<laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, I know in the yeah. book, I know in the book during your job, you actually ran into a few people. So, you know, get the book to hear those stories because that's kind of interesting where you ran into people you knew. Yeah. And that was that was a consideration when I got out there in terms of taking undercover gigs and what have you. You know, you grow up 17, 18 years in an area, you know a lot of people. But it never it never queered me on the job. And not, nobody ever showed up that I knew or said, hey, hey. I mean, they did in social environments, but not in in an undercover environment. So it worked out fine. That brings me to a good question. When I'm reading the book, I'm thinking to myself, how in the hell does this guy make busts, maybe go to court, and his cover's never blown? It's like, you you know, you made busts, but you continue to do them in the same area. But I mean, a lot of the guns and the drug trade stuff was all connected in so many different facets. So how was it you made a bust and then you would just move on to the next one? No, that, that, that's a legitimate question. And maybe you can't answer. I guess. Well, no, I guess on some level, the criminal element is connected when they can. I mean, they'd like to keep up with, you know, Intel, just like us, but you know, the hell's angels ain't talking to the black Panthers and black Panthers ain't talking to the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan ain't talking to the fucking mafia. Um, so, you know, the fact that I would show up in court as the undercover on it, you know, that never got it. It might get around the prison, you know, chatter, you know, and what have you. But the odds, I mean, we've got 350 million people in this country. The odds of someone. Now, there have been occasions where ATFs, ATF agents' pictures have been put on websites, like the Hells Angels website. Here's a picture of Jay Dobbins, you know, the undercover on the case, you know. But so then you never go back to the Hells Angels. You go to the next target. Yeah, I got you know, yeah, that was beneficial for you, though, because you didn't have to deal with the Internet shit. So I got to imagine it's a little tougher for undercover or, as you call them in the book, UCs currently. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Social media. I mean, it's instantaneous. But, you know, we got some pretty slick undercovers. I mean, first of all, you have to know who the undercover was and when. You know, a lot of times these things would plead and they would never see me in court. Not generally. Normally, I would have to appear at an initial appearance or something. But at that point, they they're not concerned about me. They're concerned about how they're going to stay out of jail for the next 40 years or if they can cut a deal or if, you know, there's any. They're not concerned about the fact that I was in UC and like, oh, let me tell the entire criminal world so they don't fall prey to him. It doesn't work that way. Two things, two things. I'll kind of I'll kind of make it two. So what if, you know, you're working a case and somebody recognizes you? Or did you ever like run into another agent who was undercover, but from a, maybe a different agency? Well, let me think. Cause there's a lot of blue on blue stuff going on in South Florida during the cocaine wars. Um, no, I did not. It was, it was not inconceivable. It happened from time to time, but back in my day, they started what they have it called was a deconfliction center. And everybody participated voluntarily on it in it. And so if I was going to do a deal, 
we wouldn't give out the details, obviously, because there might be a dirty cop on the other end or whatever. But you would give the general details and determine is DEA, you know, Sacramento PD, uh, FBI, anybody operating in this area today with any, you know, sort of operational plans or anything. And then they call you back in an hour and say, nope, nobody's operating in that area. Now, nobody knew who you were or what you were doing, but at least you made a determination that you're probably not going to end up in a blue on blue scenario. Well, uh, yeah, that's good. I guess, I mean, that makes sense. At least you're not giving out details, but you have some intel as to what's happening. Right. So one thing like we talked about, you know, right before we started, we were talking about meeting at, at CrimeCon. And like our many of our listeners are very focused, like true crime focused. And I, I want to point out that if you read his book, Rat Snakes, which I encourage everyone to do, get the book. It's great. I think it's important that everyone understands that, you know, we're talking about your job with the ATF and how you got guns and explosives off the streets, which that ultimately saves lives. Because many times in the true crime world, we always say the police should have done more. And I just want everybody to know that if you read the book, you'll learn that what he was doing really was the more that law enforcement was doing. I mean, because in your book, I realized that when you decided to be law enforcement, you were 100% law enforcement. You did not like dirty cops or dirty agencies at all. You were 100% law enforcement. And that's what everybody needs to know. You did some undercover stuff and maybe things that weren't morally correct, but in the end, you were 100% law enforcement. I mean, is that a correct statement? Oh, absolutely. And the beauty of being an ATF agent was when you were successful, you preempted crime. Instead of when I was a patrolman, often I would be called after a crime was committed and somebody had been hurt or damaged some way. But as an ATF agent, if I interdicted some guns that were intended for some gangsters or some you know, robbing crew or home invasion crew, I prevented crime on the front end. And that was always a, a source of pride. Yeah, that makes sense, but preventing it. So like you said, as law enforcement, when they come in and clean up the mess, you were making sure the mess didn't happen. When we could. Yeah, yeah. that's an accurate thing. It's a good lead in because uh, I kind of want to know what the best part of the job was. So, I mean, what was like one of the best parts of the job? And maybe, maybe you just said that. Uh, and what was the worst part about being a, a UC? Best part clearly was the freedoms and the authority and the trust and confidence placed in us by the Treasury Department. You know, you were given a car, a gun, a badge, and a bank account, for lack of a better word, funding and resources that you call upon. And, and you didn't need, you know, headquarters approval. If you as a street agent said, this is what I need to make this case go, you generally got it. And that, that, was, a, that was a big, you know, ego inspire. Like, you know, they trust me with the United States, you know, the authority of the United States government. So I got to get this right. The worst part of being a UC was, as I pointed out in my book, being the outcasts. You know, we were the dirty, dirty little secret. The bosses feared us because every time we walked out the door, there was a possibility of tragedy. Every time 
it could be a simple operation. Next thing you know, you got dead cops and dead bad guys everywhere. And that doesn't sit well with the bosses. They want a nice, quiet existing, get the next promotion, move on, no drama. But we were a necessary evil, but we also got treated like that. You know, there are oftentimes big weeks would come to the Atlanta or San Francisco field division. They'd have an all hands conference. So everybody could shake, you know, the senator's hand or whoever's hand and the director, get some face time and everything. And we were always sort of kept out of that loop. Oh, we don't want to burn your cover and have you at a big ATF gathering and everything. We knew what that was about. We look like shit. We act like shit. So you don't want us in your circle. (laughs) Well, so I guess with that being said, you know, you guys were living like different lies because you didn't just have, I don't think in the book, I think you mentioned having multiple cases where you have to like be Tom today, Dick tomorrow and Harry the next day. So it got to be tough. So you had to, you had to, you had to be pretty street smart plus just intelligent all the way around. Well, you had to be quick on your feet for sure. It is definitely a thinking man's game. If you're in the middle of your, you know, eighth graders championship football game and the call comes, you got to get out of, you know, crazy daddy, proud daddy, you know, kick ass mode and immediately get to Vinny D mode and get to the house, dress down and get to the meeting. You know, But it's well, again, I can only speak for myself, but all these guys that were in my book, guys and gals, um, we still do reunions every year. We're we're thickest thieves into a person i i feel like i can say that it came natural it was not that big a deal to me you know i kissed my wife kissed my kids say sorry dad's gotta go and they knew i was gonna catch bad guys then i on the way home to get ready to go do what i was doing i changed you know changed gears and went out and did what had to be done and if it went quick i'd be home before you know, the after party for the football game and we'd all the neighbors be together barbecuing and doing whatever. And it was like, it never happened. Now it would be difficult for an average citizen who's not trained and prepared and comfortable do- making those kind of changes. But I never really had any personality fragmentation. I never brought UC home. You know, I just brought Vince home. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the thing that I learned about in the book that you talk about. Plus, you talk about the your cohorts, if you will, your your partners in crime fighting, um, your partners in crime fighting. You, you know, the, I'm glad you said crime fighting. <laughs> yeah, the partners in crime. Well, I, I kind of spaced it there just for fun. But um, your partners in crime fighting, and these were kind of like, did that kind of reflect a little bit on your military background where these people were, I mean, they had your back. So if you called them and said, hey, I need this, or I mean, if if they showed up, you felt a little bit better because you knew that you could count on them 100%. And I know you mentioned some people in the book, and I, I, I think that's another thing that I really like because, you know, you said that you were an MP in the Marines. Well, my wife, Lauren, who's the host, she's the main host of this show um, that you met at CrimeCon. She was actually in the Navy, and she was an MA, so she was a cop in the Navy, too. She ran Harbor Patrol in Bahrain. So I think that that's kind of cool. So, you know, your people that are with you have your back. And I think throughout your career, you had a group of people who you speak about in the book that really had your back. Oh, dude, 
there's there's no way to even describe it. Let me put it this way, and maybe for your listeners, they'll understand how committed these people are. Literally, everybody in that book, and dozens more, I couldn't put everybody in a book. So I took my crew, my closest crew. I could pick up the phone right now and say nothing more than, can you get to my house in Tennessee? Can you get here, man? I, I, that's all I can say. I just need. And every one of them would start rolling in hour after hour. Yeah, see, that's what makes the job a little bit better because you had that crew. And I think that's, that's sort of admirable that those people, they knew you. And, of course, obviously, if they called you, you would be that guy rolling, too. Absolutely. So, I mean, have you, did you ever find yourself like in that scariest moment? I mean, like you were up against the baddest motherfucker you had ever met or a scary moment that, you know, you're like, hey, I, I feel like I need help. But, you know, what, what was that scariest moment for you as as an ATF agent? Because obviously you, you read the book Rat Snakes and you will find there's there's some scary moments that you had. But what was that scariest moment that really got you? Probably the scariest moment is when I talked about at CrimeCon. Um, let me see how I can speed up so it doesn't take up the whole time. Jay Dobbins, um, the author of No Angel, um, a premier undercover operator, been on all the National Geographic shows about his infiltration, the Hell, Hell's Angel. Jay and I were partners for 25 years. We got tagged to do an undercover down in Macon, Georgia, with the uh, Iron Cross motorcycle gang. Well, we thought we were smart. And they already loved us. I mean, our game was just, we were at the top of our game and we were playing it slow. Like, yeah, we're not really certain we want to be part of a motorcycle club. And they were really recruiting us hard. So we were already doing well. But we thought to seal the deal, we were at the clubhouse one day and we had pre-planned for Jay to drop his wallet. And in the wallet was all kind of wallet clutter. It was an undercover wallet. So there's all kind of lawyers, cards, and shit that would be in a bad guy's wallet. Well, we hadn't gotten out of there about an hour. Got Jay got the call. We were high-fiving and shit. And they're like, hey, come to the tattoo party that the president owned. We are like, all right. We knew what it was about. We're like, we got these motherfuckers. <laughs> oh, I probably, I probably can't say that on your podcast. But anyway. No, you can't. Um, it's all good. Okay. So we get to the tattoo parlor and the entire club, uh, the president and the vice president are there. They unlock the doors. We walk in and they're looking ominous as fuck. Like they are not digging us right at that moment. The president looks at Jay and says, get in my office. Jay goes in the office. He tells me, you stay out here. Well, I'm out here with the vice president. Or no, the vice president went in the office. I'm out there with all the other club members. And they're making real nervous, small talking, like, I fucking me to death. So I'm looking for exits. I'm deciding who I should shoot first, how I'm going to get Jay out of the office. All those things that are going through my head while smiling and talking shit. 15 minutes, Jay comes out. Little rat, the president says, I want to see you. I go in. I sit down in the chair. The president, the vice president stands directly behind me. Little rat opens a drawer, pulls out a 357 Magnum, puts it on the table. So I pause for a second, and then I pull out my 45, and I sit on the table. I said, do we got a problem here? Because I'm thinking this is all about the wallet. We're good. 
He said, well, I'm not sure if we do or not. Let's find out. So he slides me over a, a business card. You have been patronized by the Ku Klux Klan. The Klan does that. They have these little business cards they hand out at all the rallies and all that shit. I said, yeah, really cool. Well, what do you want to know? He goes, why is that in Jay's wallet? I said, hey, try this out, little rat. Ask fucking Jay. He goes, no, take a look at that card. So I look at it. I said, yeah, so what? He goes, you see that little pinhole in it? I said, yeah. He said, that's like something a cop would pin to his bulletin board for a trophy. I almost shit myself because that's exactly what it was. Oh, shit. Jay had gotten that card sometime on an undercover in the past and just stuck it on his bulletin board. And then went, oh, shit, that'd be some good wallet clutter. So he threw it in his wallet. So there's strike one. I'm like, again, dude, you need to talk to Jay about that. Not my fucking circus, not my monkeys. He goes, yeah, what about this? And he slides over a black and white photograph. It's two outlaws out of Chicago holding up a girl, spread eagle. And he goes, what do you know about that? I said, not a damn thing. He said, who's the girl? I said, I don't know. Maybe again, ask fucking Jay Dobbins. Are we done here? So finally he hemmed and hawed. Said, yeah, we're done. So I got up, took my gun, walked out. Jay and I walked out, you know, said our goodbyes, you know shook hands or whatever, like not really clear on what's going on. So I walk out the door with Jay and he goes, dude, just keep walking. We got to make a call. We jump on our bikes. We ride like literally a block. He whips into some parking lot and he starts dialing frantically. Well, apparently when he was confronted about the picture, little rat, the guy, the president said, I know those two outlaws and one of them is dead. And I don't appreciate you having that picture in your wallet. What do you know about these outlaws? He goes, dude, I don't know shit about these outlaws. I knew the chick. He sent me the picture. I just put it in my fucking wallet. So he said, what's the chick's name? Where does she live? How does she know the outlaws? Blah, blah, blah. This was all going on when Jay was in there. So Jay picks up the phone and calls a UC agent in Chicago, a female. Gives her about a 15-second brief. She says, I got it. Because he had given the phone number to Little Rat to this chick, an ATF agent in Chicago. He called her. She said, who's this? It doesn't matter. How do you know how laws in budget? She's like, I don't know who you are, and you can kiss my ass. But I used to party with the outlaws, so you better not fuck around. And he, said, and he started asking questions. She goes, fuck you. I don't know you. And I'm not. We got a call like an hour later. Meet us at this bar, Whiskey River, in uh, Macon, Georgia that night. Gave us back the wallet, um, paid for all our drinks the rest of the night, apologized for all the drama. And that was probably the, the one where I thought it could go really to shit really fast. And that is what you meant by thinking fast on your feet. Now, yeah, um, it was a fun one. With those guys, I mean, I mean, I can imagine, I mean, your bus range from like a single Uzi to crates of weapons, I'm sure. But in your best guess, I mean, what kind of what kind of bus did you get from those guys? Did you bust those guys ultimately? Well, that's a long story. The answer is yes and no. Yes, we got some individual defendants, but the informant we were using on the case was a forger, which they teach you day one in cop school, don't use forgers for informants because they lie for a living. We had to fire him. He was 
doing dope and stealing social security checks. So we put him on a uh, bus back to Arizona. He wanted Jay's informants from Arizona. Well, that pissed him off. And he went to the FBI and ATF and laid down a litany of allegations against both of us, which were ultimately unfounded. And they failed to polygraph. And it, it it was fine. But what it did was cause the bosses fear that we shouldn't be inside. So they called the case right then and we could only arrest the ones that we had cases on. You know, we were just starting off. We were only a month or two into it. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. CIs. You call them CIs, but confidential informants. Uh, I'm amazed. I, I can't believe how many confidential informants were across the board in all your cases. So, I mean, you guys are really good oh, at dude. grooming these guys. Dude, let me tell you. The uh, sensing guidelines with all the enhancements from the 90s when Clinton was in there and all the crack cocaine and all the, the firearms enhancements and the Armed Career Criminal Act and all that, they gave us such hammers. I mean, I would literally walk in and some gangbanger who was just arrested in Fulton County last night. I'd go in cold, say, you know who I am? I'd show him my creds. I'd say, you understand the difference? state and federal he's like a 21 year old gangbanger and i'm like you got two choices man. you can spend the rest of your life in prison on federal charges which was totally bullshit but they all heard about it they all heard about the enhancements and uh, or you can work with me and dude an agent without a snitch is not an agent you go nowhere how are you ever gonna i mean you can cold knock bad guys and organizations and I've been successful. My partners have been successful at going in cold, but that's an uphill battle. If you got somebody who can vouch for you and walk you right in so much quicker and easier, but then you have that risk of them pissing backwards on. You. Yeah. Well, that's that. Like I said, I was just blown away because you guys constantly talk about the CIs and it's like, man, it just seemed like those guys were running rampant. But I guess that makes sense because if you're, you know, if you're facing a lot of time, you know, you do a little snitch and yeah, you, you, you have a chance of being, you know, you could survive if, if you get with an agent 
because in your book, you even mentioned that you could really help these guys out. So if shit goes sour, you could help them out and get them out of a situation and protect them. You guys get offered protection as well. Well, and I did. I, I'm proud to say I never, I lied my ass off to get a snitch on my team. But pretty much once they were on, once they made one act, one buy, one introduction, you owned them. And I don't mean that callously, but at that point, they can't go back because they know you could like blow them out of the water. So then you start this report thing. And I can honestly say I never, ever burned a snitch or used them and didn't deliver on whatever I offered. If I offered like a clean slate or a, you know, a pass on some drug charges or something. I went to the wire and made sure that happened. Yeah, see, that's one of the things I learned in the book is you were definitely a man of your word for sure. There's no doubt about that. Well, the um, and I hate to get to this portion of it because it it doesn't really define you, kind of who you are. But you know, the ATF, you and you know what you speak about in the book, Rat Snakes, you kind of talk about the people and you talk about protecting the CIs. I mean, you guys were a pretty cool club. But of course, the ATF kind of has gotten a bad rap uh, and obviously due to the whole Waco incident, the Ruby Ridge incident. And I'm not going to ask you about all that. But of course, the one that some people might recognize you for is the Fast and Furious being the whistleblower, which I I don't like the interviews that I hear that you've done where people call you. They're like, oh, this is Vincent Sheffaloo, the the whistleblower. I read the book and I really don't look at it that way because it was such a small part of your life. I mean, because it was a small chapter. But can you just give a quick glimpse into what's going on? I mean, I don't want to I don't want to hammer away and I'm not going to ask a bunch of questions, but maybe you could just kind of, you know, tell my listeners, you know, what the Fast and Furious thing was and sort of what. Yeah. What kind of spiraled Um, your career a little bit? Like I said, I don't want to spend much time on it because I want our listeners to to grab the book and read about it. Well, a lot of people, a lot of people were expecting and wanting me to write the book on that aspect of my career. When the book came out, everybody thought it was going to be about that. But like you said, that was a microcosm in my career. It was a heinous one. But the short version was ATF had lost its way. We hadn't had a permanent director. They appointed a temporary director who brought all his friends in. Not the most ethical. They were power hungry and autocratic. Not the way our agency had been run previously. And a situation occurred in San Francisco when I was working there where they're willing to jettison me in order to keep the peace with local authorities who wanted to do an illegal wiretap. That's how it all started. I said, no, they said, well, you're going to find your ass in Fargo, North Dakota, if you go down this road. And I said, I don't have a choice but go down this road because I took an oath, all enemies, foreign, domestic, everybody, the law and the constitution applies to everybody, even with the guys with the badges that started our infighting. Well, once I became, I went public with my whistleblower stuff. I started getting calls ad nauseum night and day day and night emails from all around the country of agents who were equally being oppressed for not wanting to bend the rules and do, you know, unacceptable operations and what have you. That caused me to start a website, clean up ATF. I'm just paraphrasing now, feeding you with a fire hose. Um, And one day Jay and I were talking on the phone, which we did three or four times a day, just for, because he was embroiled in a lawsuit with the agency for not protecting them after the uh, undercover with the Hells Angels. 
because there were death threats out on him and the agency took no action. So we were both fighting the agency at the time, but still, you know, rocking along, doing our thing. One day, Jay called me and said, dude, there's some weird uh, intel coming around on the streets here. I said, like, what? He goes, that ATF lets guns walk and they kill the Border Patrol agent. Well, we both pretty much laughed off. I said, dude, that didn't happen. There's no way ATF would ever walk a gun. That was like ATF school 101, day one. You don't walk guns because they might end up getting out there and killing a police officer. So we just shrugged it off. And about an hour later, I got a message on cleanup ATF laying out the operation. And I would call Jay back and he goes, dude, it's true. So from there, it escalated. Senator Grassley and uh, Chairman Issa, chairman of the uh, oversight committee, contacted me, contacted the other players and said, is this true? What do you know? What do you... And that started the ball rolling. I didn't want to be involved in it. I'm glad I was. I'm very close with the Terry family. I think what happened to their son and their brother was heinous and totally Totally the responsibility of Bill Newell and the ATF bosses in Arizona. But that that was how that worked out. They ended up settling with me. I retired in good standing. You know, they tried to fire me three times, transferred me six times in 16 months, suspended me four times, reprimanded me four times. I mean, they came at me with everything they could, give me a break, um, knowing I had kids in high school and I didn't want to transfer and blah, blah, blah. But they ultimately caved. I mean, after the hearings, it was pretty clear ATF fucked it up bad. And, you know, Senator Grassley and Chairman Issa gave me some uh, support. And the Office of Special Counsel got involved and said, no, ATF can't do this shit. And so that was that. And that, that to me is just more of you being 100% law enforcement. I mean, that's you saying, hey, look, I don't care who you are. If you're breaking the law, this shit's going to stop. You know what? You know what it really was? And this can sound really trivial or juvenile. Me and my wife were talking and I was apprising her of what was going on. She was understanding it, knowing we might find our ass in Fargo, North Dakota and all that. How do we do? And... When, that, when the decision had to be made, when they said, you're going to Fargo, North Dakota, unless you go along with the program, conventional wisdom within ATF at that time was just choke it down. Don't put yourself in harm's way, man. Why put your family through all this? And that was going to be my position. And then I looked at my sons coming in from football practice and band. They're playing their rock band and just living a normal life. And I went, you know what? I've been telling them their whole life. Sometimes it's hard to do the right thing, but you need to do the right thing no matter how hard it is. How am I ever going to look in the mirror again without telling them, you know, everything I told you was bullshit. And that caused me to dig in and my family paid the price for the next six years. Well, that's ultimately, I mean, your family kind of supported you like everybody else had. And that's, that's that's pretty admirable. That's pretty admirable. You know, and that, that's why I, I, that's why I don't really want to spend too much time. I mean, cause that whole thing, it kind of, the fact that the agency was trying to really, they did their damnedest to try to get you to go away. I mean, like you said, the, the suspensions, the transfers, 
and again, having to be hard on the family, but, you know, fortunately, you know, your family was surrounded you and, and not just your family, your immediate family, but also your ATF family as well. I mean, they supported you. Well, about, about half of them, because the agency was so out of control under that director and deputy director. I mean, it was heinous. We had the most whistleblower complaints, most EEOC complaints, the most retaliation complaints. So about half of the agency, people like, I knew everybody in the agency. I mean, I maybe not literally, but figuratively, I literally knew basically everybody in the agency. I'd been around 20 years, been to every office, worked undercovers, been on details with them. And about half of them bladed away from me, like, oh, shit, I'm going to be seen talking to him. But the other half was like in management's face, like, fuck you. You guys are fucking over a good agent and shame on you. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of what that to me is really just like the horseshit part of it, because, there, you know, you would have a divide because there's people that are younger trying to, you know, climb up in the ranks. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess the one thing because I did I did a little bit of, you know, like I said, looking into you, who you are, the whole scenario, they put you behind a desk and paid you a shitload of money. Uh, to do nothing, basically, somewhere else. But to me, I think that was a like a mind fuck for you because you were a you were a street agent. I mean, you didn't want to be behind a desk. At least in your book, you you weren't necessarily a desk guy. So I got to imagine that they were just trying to they were trying to mind fuck you into just quitting by putting you behind a desk. I mean, would, would you agree? How did you feel oh, about it when they stuck you behind a desk, dude? That you you really did your homework. That was a common practice for this ATF executive staff. If you did or said or exposed anything corrupt, unethical, or otherwise, that's what they would do. And that's what all those people who were emailing me and and posting on cleanupatf.org and doing, they were all saying, every one of them. It was out of control at the time. And that was their playbook. They would launch internal affairs on you, check every one of your emails. They literally suspended me for an email I had written like 15 years early. Oh, they went through every, we had surveillance on my house in Lake Tahoe. My wife, who's sitting here, by the way, um, came to me one day and said, what are those two black crown Vicks doing sitting up at the end of our street there? I was like, you know what they're doing. Don't be silly. (laughs) Sometimes I'd stop, get out and walk over. They'd drive off. And sometimes I'd just wave. And sometimes I'd flip my bird. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a very, very bad time in ATF. Um, It was embarrassing. It was shameful. You saw the redacted emails that Chairman Issa held up. Look. The chairman of the oversight committee asked for the documents regarding this investigation, and you sent him a blacked out piece of paper. How do you think that's going to go over? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You weren't really a desk guy. I mean, like I said, you were kind of on the street guy, but you know, don't be fooled. If you, if you look him up and see his appearance, because I seen him and he didn't quite fit in at crime con. So if you, if you look up Vincent Sheffaloo, he didn't really fit in at crime con, but he probably fit in really good with his persona that he had to be when he was working on the streets of the ATF. I mean, you, you're no dummy. I mean, you've got a couple degrees too, if I'm not mistaken, you're not, you know, street guy that's on the street talking 
the slang. I mean, you, you've got a pretty hefty background. Yeah. And you know what? That's one of my biggest joys when people judge that book by the cover. I mean, I can tell you how many times I meet somebody, not necessarily bad guys, but the executive staff or something. We'd be having a, some big staff meeting, all the agents had to be there or something. And I would engage and they'd kind of look at me like, really? That's the dude asking the substantive questions? I'm like, well, yeah, I got a master's degree in psychology. Oh, apparently you hadn't read my bio, bitch. <laughs> well, that's why I, I have to question you about why you didn't become a suit. But you know what? Actually, if you guys get the book in chapter 10, it's titled Executive Douchebags. You will know exactly why he didn't become a suit. <laughs> You'll you know, know why? I applied for a couple boss jobs that were really like one was in Helena, Montana, another one was in Albuquerque or something, just really sweet spots. And they told me, you know, you're really not fitting the mold and everything. But I had the inside track on a position that I really wanted, but it had come to that point. I had about 15, 18 years on the job. And when they came to me and said, well, you know what? A good chance you're going to get this job. I pulled my name out of the running because it, it finally hit me that if you're going to be on a team, you got to be a team player. And that team of executives at that time in the Bureau were not substantive men and women. I'm saying there weren't any, but the overall opinion of ATF leadership was pretty low. Morale was low. And I said, how can I lock arms with these guys and, you know, pitch the company story if I don't believe in it? And that was the end. I had decided at that point, I'm going to stay a senior ATF agent in the field for the rest of my life. Yeah. Hence chapter 10 in your book, you know, executive douchebags. <laughs> so you, you must have liked that chapter because you mentioned it twice. Man, I, I did. You know, it, I've worked for the same company for 29 years. And so I've got a boss and I love my boss to death, but sometimes you worry so much about form than substance. You know, I mean, you're not happy. I'm, I'm giving you everything, but sometimes you're not happy about it. You're more worried about how I'm doing it versus how you're getting it. So in that, exactly. that kind of in that chapter, I mean, they kind of hit home, but I mean, it, there's so many other good chapters in the book. Like I said, it's rat snakes, guys. You got to get this book. When I was making a pitch to go into management, applying for those first line supervisor jobs, the SAC, the special agent in charge, called me in the office. He said, hey, I just want to shoot shit with you a little bit and see you're applying for these jobs. So let me just give you some pointers. And these are the pointers, I shit you not, <laughs> that I was given. If you go to headquarters, if you're assigned to headquarters and you get a job up there, don't step out of your office, your particular office or cubicle, without your coat on because you might run into the director. Well, I'm in my building. I might need to go take a piss. I'm not going to tighten my tie and put my coat on to walk down the hall and take a piss. He said, also, this is shit that started grading on me and why I ultimately my name from the management roles there. He said, when you get in an executive meeting, don't, when a a uh, deputy director or somebody asked for opinions about some upcoming operation or plan or policy. Don't answer till you see how the most of the table goes and then go with them. 
And at that point, I just decided I, I can't do that. Yeah, I, that well, that's understandable because if you read the book, you'll realize that you, you kind of did your own thing. It's kind of tough to you didn't really follow suit with everybody else. You kind of did what you needed to do to get it done. That's one of the things I love about the book is it, it shows some individualism of you and the other agents that were around you and supporting you. Two more questions. And then obviously anything else you want to talk about? Well, actually, I got three questions. I'm, I lied to you. I apologize. I'm an asshole. I lied. Did any of the agency... Did the other agency come to you after you tried to retire or retired and like came to you and wanted like to do consulting or help out or training or anything? Or did you just retire and that was kind of it? You told her about well, not that much. You got to remember, I was on CNN, that three part whistleblower thing and a bunch of times on Fox News. I've literally been requested to go speak at certain conferences and do things. And it's been fine and fun. I sold books and everything. Other ones were like, um, I know we asked you to come, but the executive board, upon reviewing your background, um, thinks it might not be a good fit, you know, kind of thing. You know, managers not wanting me to trash management, which was not my goal, but it happened. I figured maybe that they would ask for like consulting or something because you've got a pretty hefty career. If you were to, let's say somebody come and ask you, say, hey, could you talk to some of these new recruits for the ATF? What's something that you would say to a new recruit in the ATF? Uh, Straight true to your oath, do your job to the best of your ability and stay apolitical. Yeah, because the politics plays a big part of it. Don't take a position on the laws. Congress writes the laws. We just enforce them. Don't get passionately involved like David Chipman, the guy they've nominated to be the director of ATF. He clearly has an agenda. You know what? We're cops. We don't have an agenda. If you didn't break the law, I'm going to make sure everybody knows you didn't. And if you didn't break the law, I'm going to put the handcuffs on. It ain't rocket science. Yeah, see? And again, that's what I said. You cop to the end, and I love it. I mean, what really encouraged you to write the book? I think it was 2006 I read somewhere that you kind of started putting this together. Actually, it goes back to probably, oh, I think I registered Rat Snakes with their Writers Guild back in 2001 or something, just because I had kind of this idea. But then over the next couple of years, like I said, we get together, all those people in that book that are still alive, we get together every year or two times or three times a year and we got to talking and we had been doing so since the 90s going wow somebody needs to put this on paper nobody's gonna believe it number one number two when it's gone when we all croak it's it's gone nobody will ever know and that was kind of you know and then when I told people I was banging on it they're like you should man that's a great idea blah blah let me tell you this story and that story and it just kind of morphed into i was just a clearinghouse guy gotcha you were the you were the brains behind the book but you kind of had all their help with the stories yeah i was i was probably the best looking guy no i was probably the best looking guy everybody so that's why i did it (laughs) well with the exception of the female that was in the group who was pretty badass in the book oh Uh, bambi yes Freaking best. In fact, her and her husband probably could come up here and go right around and play with us here pretty soon. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I know when we talked, you said something about going on a lake. I'm going to kind of close. I don't want to keep you, um, but, you know, is there anything else that I you want to, want to say? I do want to say before we close, Bambi is the only chick who ever cop blocked me in my ATF career. <laughs> do you want to tell that story or is it? I don't, I don't think you that's want in to the hear book. about it. Yes, I do. I don't think that's in the book. Oh, no, yes, I do. I was hoping you'd ask me to tell that story. Just so you know, and it's it's like a badge of honor, but I didn't particularly like it in my young 20s and everything. ATF agents are notorious cop blocks. That's just a thing we do. I don't know why. It's a really bad trait because you want to pump your brothers, you know, especially if somebody's going to get lucky and whatever. So we had a big, big conference in Atlanta. All the outlying offices had to come. So my boss and all my friends who I hadn't seen from the other offices for months. And it was just a big throwdown. So we're at a local bar in uh, Lawrenceville where I live. And so this one girl I was like making time with decided she'd come. But she was kind of a prude. She's kind of a snooty bitch anyway. I'm trying to defend Bambi here. So anyway, <laughs> But she was hot. And I was like, oh, I am so closing on this tonight because all my cool friends are around pumping me and everything. And so the chick gets a case of the ass and attitude because I'm talking to all my friends. I haven't seen them in months and months. Like they're from Macon and Savannah and whatever, all our offices. So we're cutting up and having a good time. And she starts throwing a little attitude around like, um, aren't you here with me? And why aren't you over here? And Bambi overhears <laughs> that and stands her down once and says, you know, uh, you need to chill. We're all friends. We haven't seen each other. Um, you'll be fine, whatever. So this goes on for another hour and I'm like doing shots with everybody and we're just having a big time. And she comes over and throws a case of the ass at me. You know, well, if you're not going to include me and blah, blah, blah. And Bambi over the music and like a hundred people in this bar, the volume was crazy. You hear, let me tell you something, bitch. You <laughs> get the hell out of here right now. And I looked at Bambi like, no, don't do that. <laughs> and toward her, like in a physical connotation. And she hauled ass and I went home alone. <laughs> Uh, that's a good story to end with too. So Vince, I can't thank you enough for uh, chatting with me. Um, oh, I've been really you. looking forward to, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I mean, I was a child of a police officer, so I love hearing the, the police stories and really enjoyed the book. So I want to encourage all of our listeners to get a copy of Vincent Sheffaloo's book, Rat Snakes. Uh, as you go along in the book, you're going to learn that Vince was one hell of an agent and probably part of one of the best groups out there for the ATF at the time. You will learn about so many of the sacrifices that he had to make throughout his life and his career, but also always remained on the side of law enforcement until his retirement. Also, if, if you know of him because of his involvement in the Fast and Furious, and as we talked about earlier, the whole whistleblower thing, then you really need to get a copy of Rat Snakes and find out that his career was much more involved and admirable than what the politicians and media would lead you to believe. To really get a feel for what it's like in the trenches of the ATF, pick up a copy of his book, Rat Snakes, Cheating Death by Living a Lie, Inside the Explosive World of ATF's Underground Agents and How We Change the Game. And you can get these anywhere you get your books. You can give them an audible. Again, thank you very much, Vince. We really appreciate you spending time with us tonight. Well, thank you, brother.
Anybody who wants an autographed copy can go to www.ratsnakesbook.com and put in the uh, comment section they'd like to have it autographed, and they'll get an autographed copy from me. If they want it autographed, that'd be cool. Ratsnakesbook.com. Appreciate it, brother. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that. That was a great interview. I really enjoyed doing it. He's a really good guy. So pick up a copy of his book. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Paradise After Dark. Duck, 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 duck. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.